So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Emily Seidler. Dr. Seidler is a clinical instructor at Harvard Medical School as well as the Associate Clerkship Director of OBGYN at Beth Israel. She's also a full-time employee at the Harvard Medical Faculty physicians and a clinician at Boston IVF. And today we're very excited to have her uh, come on with us to talk about malarian anomalies or congenital uterine anomalies. Thank you very much, Dr. Seidler. Thanks for having me. We also have with us Margie Thorson, who is a PGY1 at Women and Infants and Brown University OBGYN Residency, who is going to be describing to us the different types of uterine anomalies. Thanks so much for having me, Faye. It's great to be here. Dr. Seidler, to start us off today, what would you describe their learning objectives as? Yeah, so malarian anomalies are sort of one of those things that we see not super frequently um, in practice or in training, but we see with astounding frequency in terms of test questions. So a few things I want you guys to get out of this is what are malarian anomalies, what are the different types, how they arise, and then sort of how we treat them and how you can get those test questions right, because you'll definitely see them. Um, so first things first, Dr. Seidler, I guess you already talked about the fact that we don't see them very often, um, but why is it important to know about uh, congenital uterine anomalies and really how frequent are they? Yep. So, um, and malarian anomalies, congenital uterine anomalies, CUAs, I'll sort of use that interchangeably, but um, CUAs are important because they cause pelvic pain. They sometimes cause abnormal uterine bleeding or dysmenorrhea, um, recurrent pregnancy loss or RPL, and can cause uh, preterm delivery. They can also be asymptomatic. Um, so sometimes we find these incidentally. Um, but they're often found because we're evaluating them for primary amenorrhea or infertility. So in my world, as a reproductive endocrinologist, um, I see these sort of not infrequently. 
Um, so we're also seeing these associated with skeletal and renal abnormalities. Up to almost a third of uh, women with CUAs will have a renal abnormality. So that's also something that we need to make sure we're ruling out um, for just a patient's general health and something that definitely comes up on test questions and they they're that's super testable. No, these seem so rare. How common are they really? It's a great question. It's really not something that we have a great grasp on. It's frequently asymptomatic, so many women don't know that they have a malarian variant. Um, but it's thought to be that 2, two to 6% of the general population of reproductive-aged women have some kind of malarian var- variant, and it seems to be more common in women who have infertility or women who have recurrent pregnancy loss. So it seems like from most of the studies that I looked at, 8 to 16% of patients with recurrent pregnancy loss have a malarian variant. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what would be the most common things that we might see for women who have CUAs? Yeah, so let's go through sort of the types of CUAs and um, the frequency. So what you definitely need to come away knowing from this um, episode is that a septate uterus or a septum is the most common um, malarian anomaly. So that's what we're going to see by far the most often. Um, and then going down from there, a bicornuate uterus, a unicornuate uterus, uterine didelphus, and then finally uterine agenesis. So simply like lack of development of malarian structures. Um, and we'll go into all of those a bit more. Importantly, um, arcuate uterus, which you may have heard of um, in sort of the uh, context of a malarian anomaly, is now considered a normal variant. So if you're looking sort of at the endometrial cavity, at the fundal contour, having up to a one centimeter dip from sort of the ostea or the cornua to the midline um, inside the cavity is normal. That's an arcuate and is not, you know, is no longer considered um, an anomaly or anything we need to do anything about. All right. So Dr. Seidler, I feel like I'm remembering from once upon a time, way back in medical school, something about how the uterus like comes from two sides and forms together in the middle. And I think it was a really traumatic time. I don't know if it was for you, Faye, of just like embryology and trying to hold on to these things. But yep. do we need to really know this for creags? <laughs> yeah. Great question. And I felt this way too. It feels... Um, it's pretty, I want to demystify it. It's pretty overwhelming, um, daunting to think about embryology, but I think actually looking at it this way clinically makes something like learning embryology a lot more fun. Um, and if you understand just these key basics, you can usually sort of think through any of these on a test rather than just memorizing. So Wolfian ducts and malarian ducts are the two sort of types of embryological ducts that then form um, all of the parts. So Wolfian ducts are male, and I've heard all sorts of ways to remember this, but Wolfian is mesonephric, so you can remember M, mesonephric, male. Um, And you need that Y chromosome. So it's the XY and then the Y chromosome containing the SRY gene that then ends up producing AMH or anti-malarian hormone. And I know that can be a little counterintuitive because we think of AMH clinically as like a test that we use on women with infertility. But in utero, AMH is much higher in male fetuses. And if you just break it down anti-malarian hormone, it's anti-malarian or anti-female parts. Um, And so that's what you need to make sort of the Wolfian ducts um, into uh, internal male structures. On the other hand, malarian ducts or paramesonephric is female. And this is really the default. So no AMH means the Wolfians regress. 
And this includes the malarian structures of uterus, tubes, cervix, and then upper vagina. So that's important. It's not the entire vagina, but it's the upper one-third. And the ovaries are totally separate. Okay, so that's the urogenital ridge. And it's really helpful to know that clinically because when you're looking at any sort of anomaly that involves, say, the uterus, then that will likely involve the tubes, maybe the cervix, but not the ovaries. Those would be spared because that's a completely different embryological um, etiology. So when we think about how um, these malarian ducts sort of form and form into the uterus, tubes, cervix, and upper vagina – They start to elongate caudally, so sort of downward, starting around six weeks gestation. And by 12 weeks gestation, that caudal portion fuses to form the early uterus and vagina. So I know this seems totally esoteric, like very uh, hard to picture. So I like to um, describe it like using your forearms. So if you're picturing the two malarian ducts, they start out like two solid cylinders laying side by side. It's like your forearms from your elbows down to your hands. And the caudal portion is your elbows, right? So if you bring your two forearms, and we're all, we're all kind of doing this together. <laughs> so if you bring your two forearms and you bring your elbows together and then slowly start, you know, sort of bringing your whole forearm together upwards toward your wrist, that's sort of how the fusion occurs. And then instead of being solid cylinders, they start to undergo canalization and an open channel develops basically in each of your arms. Um, And then eventually that open channel fuses together to form an open cavity. And I feel like this works especially well because the top form, the top part forms the fallopian tubes and fimbria, and those are like your hands and your fingers. We're always, I feel like, describing fimbriated ends with our fingers. Um, And then the bottom part sort of toward your elbows and forearms is the uterus and upper vagina. So by 20 weeks gestation, this septum, meaning that part between your two forearms, um, should resorb and form that open cavity, um, and that should be complete by about 20 weeks gestation. So let's talk a little bit more about what can go wrong with all of this and what part going wrong would lead to what. Sure thing. So one of the things that can happen is if you have failure of both of the ducts to elongate and develop, you can have hypoplasia of the uterus or agenesis. And that can present many different ways. Some patients will have vaginal hypoplasia. Others will have cervical, fundal. Some patients will have a combined um, hypogenesis or agenesis of various parts of the malarian system. And then as far as other things that can go wrong in the process, um, in a unicornuate uterus, there's incomplete or failed development of one of the ducts. So if there's incomplete development or one of the ducts doesn't form correctly, you can have a non-communicating horn of the uterus, and that can be associated with cyclic pelvic pain, almost as if the menses are trapped in this part of the uterus that doesn't communicate through the vagina. Then you can think about didelphus, and in that situation, you have complete failure of fusion of the ducts. So you get duplication of the uteri and cervices. And sometimes we don't know about this, and a patient undergoes a C-section and they have two uterus, uteri and two cervices. It's not common, but it sometimes is asymptomatic. And it may be associated with a longitudinal vaginal septum, but not always. And then thinking back to our little embryology discussion, if there's incomplete fusion of the superior portion of the uterus with normal fusion of the inferior portion, then you can have a bicornuate uterus. And a septate uterus is a different process entirely. 
This is when the septum that we talked about that usually resorbs at 20 weeks fails to do so. And in this case, you have a fibromuscular septum between the two malarian ducts. So then lastly, vertical fusion defects, these lead to a transverse vaginal septum. So again, not totally intuitive, but you just have to remember it has to do with the defect leading to the outcome. So a vertical fusion defect leads to a transverse vaginal septum, um, partial vaginal agenesis, and or cervical agenesis. And we probably see these a little less often, but can be... uh, you know, symptomatic in terms of a transverse vaginal septum may cause a patient discomfort um, during intercourse. And for that sort of reason, you may want to resect that. And lastly, um, DES exposure in utero. So these are moms who back in the 1950s and up to 1971 were ironically actually given DES when they were pregnant to prevent pregnancy loss. Um, But unfortunately, then we came to realize that those female babies um, were born with um, some very specific uterine anomalies. So we mostly think of a T-shaped uterine cavity, but can also be a hypoplastic uterus or an endometrial cavity adhesions. And if you think about women who were born up to age 1971, you know, they're now at the youngest in their late 40s. So they've mostly aged out in terms of their reproductive potential. Um, we're still seeing a few of them in the infertility world who are going through donor egg embryo transfers, like sort of at the very tail end. Um, but we definitely have seen, for example, an HSG, you know, T-shaped uterine cavity. It's really classic. Um, and they do sometimes ask about that still. The genetics in general of these malarian anomalies is not well understood. They're mostly thought to be polygenic or multifactorial, and I've definitely seen a CREOG question asking about malarian agenesis or MRKH, which we're going to go into, and that the genetics behind that is, you know, multifactorial. So the karyotype of these women is generally normal, 46XX. Super important to remember that. That was really helpful. Thank you. I'm going to Imagine now next year on Kriogs, everybody with their forearms out trying to like put them together and just imagine this. It's <laughs> so, Dr. Seidler, I guess the last thing that I want to talk about is actually, you know, say you have a suspicion for some sort of malarian anomaly. The next thing we go to, obviously, is thinking about physical exam and thinking about imaging. But what considerations do we need for imaging? Is there something that's preferred over another type of imaging? Um, what can you share with us about that? Yeah, great question. So in general, we're often finding these actually, again, in an infertility patient evaluation, first on HSG. So remember that HSG is a hysterocelpingogram. This is an x-ray test that is essentially flushing a little bit of dye that shows up on the x-ray into a patient's uterine cavity that should then flow out of their tubes. And we're mostly, you know, using this to confirm tumor patency, but we also get sort of a snapshot at what their uterine cavity looks like. And so if we find this HSG that classically has like two bunny ears, which I've definitely seen pop up on exams, um, and they say, you know, what is this or what's your next step? You definitely can't just definitively diagnose based on that. So those two bunny ears on HSG, if you're picturing this is just reflecting the cavity, this could be a large uterine septum, and that would have a normal fundus, or it could be a bicornuate or a didelphus, which is you know a heart-shaped fundus. So it definitely needs further uh, imaging. And like really with anything in the OBGYN world, ultrasound is our best friend. So 2D ultrasound is usually a first step. This is, you know, an initial imaging modality of choice, as always, widely available. It's non-invasive. 
um, relatively inexpensive. And it can also look at the renal system. So remember, if you're thinking about a malarian anomaly, they can kind of just take a look at the kidneys as well while they have the ultrasound. A 3D sonohistogram is especially helpful here. So 3D ultrasound, of course, and then the sonohistogram part is placing a small amount of fluid, saline, into the uterine cavity. The way I describe this to patients is, you know, the uterus is generally um, collapsed, so the cavity is a potential space. So if you had your, like, palms together flat and you were holding a jelly bean and I held, you know, I showed you the side view, you wouldn't know that I was holding anything. But if I just pop my palms open a little bit, you would be able to tell, you know, what the contours look like very easily. And we use this um, in our world all the time to look for polyps and fibroids. And it's also really helpful to get a better look at the cavity to see if it looks like a septum um, or anything else going on. And then having the 3D element allows us to take a look at their fundus as well. And then lastly, MRI, um, again, just like in most of GYN, it's often not necessary. It's sort of um, a more expensive um, adjunct that we would only really use if ultrasound isn't definitive. And it's also quite helpful for surgical planning. So if a patient has sort of a complex uterine anomaly um, and is symptomatic with pain, um, maybe bad endometriosis and is going to undergo surgery, an MRI could be helpful um, in that time. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Seidler and Margie for coming onto the podcast with us. I'm sure our listeners are going to find this very helpful. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it's a fun topic, I think, once you kind of break it down and demystify it a bit. So, All right, Nick, so should we go ahead and try and summarize? Absolutely. So today, again, we talked about malarian anomalies or congenital uterine anomalies. These can present with pelvic pain, abnormal bleeding, dysmenorrhea, pregnancy loss, preterm delivery, or most often can be asymptomatic. You should remember that these can be associated as well with skeletal and renal anomalies. Their prevalence roughly is about 5 to 6% in all comers, but that incidence increases depending on the type of complaint. Frequency of the types of CUAs goes from septate uterus, which is the most common, to bicornuate, unicornuate, didelphus, and agenesis. And importantly, arcuate uterus is now considered a normal variant if it's up to a one centimeter dip in the fundal contour of the cavity. We then talked about normal embryology, which is very important in learning about the development of normal uteruses and also, of course, these malarian anomalies. So Dr. Seiler talked to us about the Wolfian duct or the mesonephric ducts, which um, require the SRY gene, which is on the Y chromosome, M for male, as well as the malarian ducts or the paramesonephric ducts, which is the default. No AMH, meaning that the Wolfian ducts will regress and the malarian ducts will continue to develop into the uterus, tubes, cervix, and the upper one-third of the vagina. The malarian ducts, we talked about trying to put your elbows together and using that as your two tubes that then come together, cannulize, and then fuse and uh, elongate to become the uterus and then the vagina and the fallopian tubes. Usually by 20 weeks, the two tubes will have come together and the septum between them will have absorbed. And so the top part will form the fallopian tubes and the fimbria, and the bottom part is going to become the uterus and the upper vagina. In terms of abnormalities, there are three main categories, agenesis or hypoplasia, lateral fusion defects, and vertical fusion defects. And the karyotype in all of these is usually normal, 46XX. To start agenesis or hypoplasia, the classic is MRKH or malarian agenesis, where on exam, the person looks totally normal or totally female with a 
pelvic exam revealing a blind vaginal pouch or shortened vagina with normal breasts, normal pubic and axillary hair. The confounding one for test questions here is the androgen insensitivity syndrome, which by contrast has no pubic hair because the androgen receptors are blind to the testosterone that's present. Um, lateral fusion defects to the next category where you can imagine your two arms are not coming together elbows to hands normally um, and sort of counterintuitively these lateral fusion defects form longitudinal problems so either longitudinal septums or bicornuate or didelphus uterus and you can see two cervixes in this um, if there's an abnormal absent uterine horn, the ipsilateral sides tube is affected as well, and this also carries through to renal abnormalities on that same side. Vertical fusion defects are the last category that lead to a transverse vaginal septum, so again, that sort of counterintuitive nature once again, as well as potentially leading to partial vaginal agenesis or cervical agenesis. And the last sort of miscellaneous category we talked about was diethylstilbestrol or DES exposure in utero that leads to the classic T-shaped uterine cavity in female offspring. We finally talked about the best diagnostic tools, which would be your exam and your imaging. So usually we would find these with a 2D ultrasound, which is widely available. And you can also take a look at the renal system if you do suspect some type of anomaly. Um, the next steps that may be helpful would be a 3D ultrasound and as well as a 3D sonohistogram, which would allow you to open up the cavity and take a look and also recreate that 3D image. MRIs are only necessary really if the ultrasound isn't definitive and they certainly can be helpful if you're thinking about taking that patient to the OR if they have some type of more complex anomaly. Um, and finally, because we are talking about uh, certain findings coming from the fact that people have um, an infertility workup, an HSG might also be the first thing that you'll use to make that initial diagnosis. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and go onto Apple iTunes, onto Spotify or Google Play and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or you can head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee, where by giving us some support, you can get a shout out or some swag. To find adjunct learning materials for this show and every other show, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have an idea for a future episode or need to send us some correction or love for a past episode, email us creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.